This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Talia Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Hokai Diego Sobel. Hokai started practice and study of Buddhism in 1985. After 10 years of exploring Buddhist thought and practicing martial arts, while broadly learning from sources Eastern and Western, mainstream and French, Hokai became a practitioner and eventually instructor in the Shingong esoteric tradition of Japanese Vajrayana under private tutelage of Ajari Jomyo Tanaka. Hokai founded the Mandala Society of Croatia in 1999. Continuing to explore and cultivate his own Buddhist practice, Hokai maintains an ongoing conversation with a number of teachers and senior practitioners. Starting in 2012, he focuses on mentoring individuals to deepen their practice in the context of their lives. Those who pray learn to meditate. Those who meditate learn to pray. Hokai's areas of special interest include mystical principles and esoteric practices in daily life, sacred apprenticeship, and deep semiotics. He is based in Rijeka, Croatia. Okay, Diego Sobol, welcome to the Mystical Positivist. Oh, thank you for having me. It's great. Um, I'm excited about the conversation. And I will begin as we um, do with first-time guests, which implies that we want to have you back, of course, in the future. But um, this first question is to invite you to look back on your childhood and youth and reflect on any experiences or instances that, upon reflection, you would point to and say, ah, that was a harbinger, that was a, a precursor, that, was a, that pointed to the direction that my uh, spiritual practice and life work would uh, uh, later take. Anything, anything like that that comes to mind? Yeah. Well, um, that's difficult, but um, I, 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 I suddenly uh, developed an interest in my in my teens um, mm -hmm. that was in 1984, 1985, uh, through reading, um, probably uh, through the encounter with uh, the texts of Western Hermitism, hmm. and uh, I remember um, getting a present. Uh, from from my parents, I think it was my mom who who paid uh, for for a collection of twelve volumes on mythology hmm. uh, with with many illustrations and uh, um, you know like a dictionary of symbolism things hmm. like that. I have no idea why she did that. Um, wouldn't uh, you know? I I would never expect she did that because that somehow crossed with her interests. It was there was probably you know a traveling salesman 
going through where she worked and all <laughs> made an offer. Uh, you know, it it you know it looked it looked like a lot, and then you know for a, for a teenage uh, you know young guy, it's a good thing to you know to broaden one's cultural horizons, things like that, right? And um, you know, she probably guessed it would be a good present. So I remember that, and I remember also going through uh, at at the same time. Um, you know, being 15, 16, 17, something like that, going through a period of uh, turmoil, um, not just emotionally, but um, something something much deeper and, and broader, uh, a period of unrest. Uh, you could call it uh, a period of disorientation. And just looking around for, you know, what wasn't available in conventional uh uh, mainstream, you know, smorgasbord of options. Uh, you know, go for sports, go for a career, go for education, whatever the deal is. Um, I was, you know, just prompted to start looking. And uh, there was actually not one point. There was a period of, well, perhaps 10 years that that's, that's exactly what I did. I looked as, you know, as the proverb says, under every stone, uh, left no stone unturned, something like that, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I just kept looking, 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 not you know, not not actually trying to find something, but actually to to develop a good sense of of knowing how to orient myself. Ah, did you did you configure it that way to yourself at the time? No, not really. But but uh, knowing my knowing my temperament, there must have been a kind of a guiding intelligence in that in that seeking because. I wasn't actually trying to score with, you know, with, with finding something and saying, yeah, this is it, right? Was, I was, you know, I was actually uh, interested in, in, in really going through from A to Z, uh, a little bit like those 12 volumes presented the mythology of, of the whole world, and just basically seeing the, the uh, humanity's record, you know, of... Uh, what was accomplished so far when it comes to uh, interpreting and recording deep meanings. So it, it just so happened that, that uh, early in that period I was, uh, I was exposed to uh, basic forms of Buddhist practice through uh, taking part in, a, at that time, the only Buddhist group in the country, which, again, at that time was Yugoslavia. That was before the Balkan Wars. Uh, now we have... Uh, I guess six countries where one used to be, and uh, my my homeland is Croatia. And oh, that was a bell. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry that you heard that. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> we'll have to excise that later. That, that's that's a sound that, that that did it for me many many times. Yeah. So <laughs> welcome so, to uh, the 21st century. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, it was it was a lot of seeking and looking, but also also kind of beginning to beginning to establish uh, uh, a daily practice, a practice of attending to something important, something that uh, you know must be visited and revisited again and again and again, therefore daily. And uh, I remember, uh, you know, I remember because I have some diary entries from that period, uh, trying to sit for five minutes and physically struggling to be still. 
which you know probably isn't so surprising if you're 16 or something like that, right? Not the least. Yeah, but looking back, it sounds it sounds almost incredible. You know, five minutes? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> and I was also exposed, uh, you know, fortunately, I was also exposed to martial arts quite early. Hmm. Uh, 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 Okinawan, uh, Okinawan, uh, you know, uh, empty hand combat. Hmm. Uh, and uh, that was for the for the first you know for the first ten years that was like a counterpoint to my uh, growing interest in in Buddhist uh, teaching and practice. And uh, although I never stopped reading from other sources, uh, the practice soon became uh, soon became a, a purely Buddhist practice, probably because. Uh, you know, some instruction was available uh, easily. Uh, secondly, it was uh, su- at least superficially not a belief system uh, required to enter before one could actually practice. Uh, and thirdly, uh, you know, there was a there was a, a kind of a, um, I don't know for what reason, but in that same period there was an avalanche of translated titles. Uh, uh, that covered uh, the Theravadan and uh, Tibetan and Zen, uh, you know, traditional teachings. Uh, so the reading was also quite available. And but soon, you know, soon, uh, of course, uh, maybe seven or eight years later, we gradually started to uh, develop uh, a broader range of interests in that group, um, the early Buddhist group. So uh, yeah. let me let me just interject for a second. I, I, I just want to make sure I understand the context. You had a you, you would probably say that you had a more or less secular um, upbringing in terms of uh, like exposure to traditional Christianity um, of whatever um, kind, whether Latin or Greek. Oh, uh, well, I don't think for the church before I was 14 or something like that. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So that I just wanted to make sure that uh, that it, uh, I understood that that context. So the so the Buddhism was your first real engagement with a with a religious tradition. It sounds like. Yeah. Well, simultaneously to that, I also started uh, started uh, trying out uh, several things that were available from the Western Hermetic tradition. Okay. What, what sorts of things were those? Well, mostly alchemy and uh, alchemy and uh, some elements of Kabbalah and uh, a Rosicrucian philosophy, things yeah. like that. Were there any particular sources or uh, uh, or sort of classic works? Eh, well, frankly, it was all over the place, yeah. and that that was also one of the reasons why why I kind of uh, backed up, you know, backed off uh, mm. because there was no clear. There was no clear map or system or anything rigorous enough for, you know, for what I was looking for. Right. Yeah. So, so that took the back back burner. But then later I went back and and read some some classical texts um, and and recognized that there has to be a common you know a common thread to what in the popular culture is is thought to be Eastern wisdom. Uh, there is. There is a lot of material in the West, only that it has been, you know, uh, basically uh, forgotten. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, or actively suppressed through, you know, through long periods of history. Um, so anyway, uh, these first 10 years, as I said, were, were, uh, were a struggle to, to learn how to orient myself. And then uh, somewhere in the uh, mid-90s, uh, I encountered uh, a Japanese uh, mid-90s, 90, well, probably 96, uh, a Japanese teacher that that would later become my uh, my guide and uh, mentor in the practices of Japanese Vajrayana, which goes by the name Shingon. So did was that, did that encounter occur in Croatia or elsewhere? No, no. Actually, uh, you know, uh, me and me and a uh, uh, more senior practitioner from that early group mm-hmm. uh, went for a trip to the United States. Oh, we okay. we we went uh you know hunting for a teacher huh. and uh we we visited uh you know several uh buddhist centers of uh, different styles there was a chinese zen uh, chan yeah. chan center in brooklyn new york uh, actually queens sorry uh and then there was a there was an upstate new york center of japanese tendai mm-hmm. And then there was a center in Vermont, or a, or a group in Vermont, that practiced Shingon, but the teacher was absent at that time. Mm-hmm. And we met his senior student there. Uh, and, uh, you know, we basically established contacts and uh, see what was there. And it wasn't until two years later, so that would be 98, that I was able to travel to uh, Netherlands, mm-hmm. where... This, this Japanese teacher who had uh, a group in Vermont uh, was was having a seminar and would actually spend in Netherlands uh, at that period uh, something like one month every year. Uh, and uh, I was able to uh, uh, you know travel to Netherlands uh, that year and next year and basically become a student uh, of this master uh, goes by the name Jomyo Tanaka. And after that initial uh, encounter, uh, he started visiting my, my home every year mm-hmm. uh, for, for the next 10 years. So uh, I didn't have to travel much uh, to, to get teachings from him and you know receive new trainings. But then I would occasionally travel to, to uh, the East Coast, uh, United States and and stay there for a couple of weeks or a month and um, you know um, just to you know get fresh stuff and uh, uh, make sure that I don't get sidetracked and things like that. Right. I'm I'm interested in what the initial encounter was uh, like. How how was it that you knew that this was someone that you wanted to study deeply with uh was it a an emotional connection was it a intellectual or something beyond that was it a knowing was it a slow process how did that unfold for you well there have been there was a process process of there was a period actually of of you know of not knowing uh, is this you know is this the right thing to do is this mm-hmm. is this person to to entrust one's, uh, you know, one's one's practice 
uh, to and things like that. But uh, actually, this process was uh, on both ends. The process of of clarifying who's on the other side. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, who, who 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 am I talking to? And there was. Uh, fr- from the side of my my teacher, there was there was no you know active pressure to make up my mind all at once. So I appreciated that a lot. And but as as we spent more time together in informal settings, especially when he started uh, uh, visiting my home and you know staying living with me basically mm-hmm. for for weeks at a time uh, and uh, just spending every every second of the day together uh, you know there was a human element there a, uh, a, a kind of a, there was a kind of a basic human uh, connection and uh, and an understanding that you know the roles in which we find ourselves are 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 just that roles and there is there is an underlying uh, there's there's an underlying sense of trust mm. that that goes beyond those roles, and that's actually that what did it for me, that that human connection and that uh, uh, no pretense, uh, you know, either sitting together having breakfast and uh, you know chatting about politics or <laughs> or or just enjoying uh, enjoying a you know. Food and drink and practicing together, you know, singing together, uh, sitting together in meditation. Those those basic things that have nothing to do with with status or authority or things like that. That that was the basis of trust, that, and that happened gradually. That that's very interesting because um, you know we've we've over the last eight years or more we've interviewed quite a few people on this radio show from different traditions and relatively few practitioners I would say had the kind of intimacy with their teacher that you're talking about and the reason it's particularly interesting to Stuart and I is that that's our experience we had the same sort of uh, day after day um, mostly day long um, uh, uh, sense of ordinary intimacy uh, with our teacher and that's a that's a you know that is a notable thing, not very common, the, uh, not very commonly reported, I would say, in most of the um, teachers, uh, etc., and practitioners that we've spoken to. Yeah, because I think it's very important, uh, even even if it's not commonly reported, it's important to to mention that that kind of just uh, uh, downtime. You know, downtime spent together, mm-hmm. uh, that was something assumed and taken for granted in the traditions. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and, uh, of course, when we talk about, you know, huge monastic organizations, that probably didn't happen there. Uh, so, you know, access to teacher was even there very limited. Right. Uh, but then you had, you know, you had what is called the kind of a head teacher, and then you had usually an intermediary teacher that actually, uh, you know, uh, you had contact with on daily basis. So even there, even in huge monastic institutions, uh, you had someone to to relate to on daily basis, and that person gave that other 
you know, teacher some kind of human face, right? Right. So it not it was not one person. It could have been two, three, four, something like that. Yeah, uh, but but more to the point, even in the in a monastic context, uh, every moment more or less is uh, sort of pointing back to the shared purpose of some sort of spiritual practice. And when, for, in our experience, having uh, living with our teacher and having this kind of intimacy, even if we were doing ordinary things, those ordinary things were not ordinary in that context. Exactly. And that's quite a distinction from, let's say, the Western model where you go to a teaching and then go home and you're kind of on your own to recreate the energy of the practice in your own context. Yep, and th- th- that's exactly true. And also, uh, I think that through spending time doing normal things, you also get to understand the person at a very different level. And uh, the, especially when it comes to the, uh, you know, to the results or effects of their training uh, on their behavior, uh, when when you get to see the way they move around, you know the way they recline, the way they uh, redirect their their gaze, the way they pause to think, the way they say something, the way you know what they find funny, uh, what they find embarrassing, you know how they you know sometimes struggle to do something. Mm-hmm. So basically, getting a very somatic you know a somatic yeah. feel for the person. Not 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 something based on an intellectual analysis or something like that. Just spending hours and hours and hours together, you get you get a kind of a deeper feel for someone, and for their, you know, for their personality, but also for for uh, for a sense of something that is that is deeper or that is behind that personality. Yeah, and, I was going to say that 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 one of the functions that you that I think you're touching on here is is the way that a teacher can model. Behave, model behavior, model responses to challenges and yep. to non-challenging contexts as well, and that's a that's a teaching right there. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then a good teacher will will sometimes use a very innocent, you know, uh, situation where you don't expect for there to be anything profound to discover. To basically just you know crack the surface open and you know point to something seemingly just you know en passant without giving it great importance, just kind of pointing something out, saying something, and then you go you, you just stop and you notice something that was that was there all along, but you know uh, you can discover that you were basically ignoring it or or, yeah. or seeing it but not knowing what what it is that you are saying. Yeah, this, yeah I mean you're you're reminding me that that if you know our, our teacher would um, would basically make the trivial vastly important and what most people consider vastly important trivial and that that those reversals are really uh, helpful yeah very good I have I have a similar experience there yeah so it's interesting that um, in the context of the Buddhist seeking it sounds like you would configure the uh, the core of that teaching relationship was more about the relationship with the teacher and that intimacy rather than the particulars of the context of the teaching like and 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 the reason I'm asking that is I'm kind of wanting to lead into the you know Xingang is is 
not well known and not well understood, uh, certainly in the West, in terms of uh, 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 lineages of Buddhism. Yeah. And I'm curious if there was anything in the context of that tradition that you found uniquely supported your process that maybe wasn't available in other traditions or, or you know, or was this more about just finding the right teacher and the tradition was less important? Well, uh, in my case, I was actually looking for a Shingon teacher. Mm, okay. Uh, and uh, the problem was there, was there wasn't any. Uh, and I, I had exposure, uh, you know, relatively brief exposure, but committed and serious to both Zen uh, in its Chinese form, Chan, and also to to uh, you know to several Tibetan Buddhist styles uh, early on and then later again. But uh, with with Shingon, uh, the thing is that the what 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 we call trivial, or in the context of a relationship with the teacher, normal daily interactions, and what we call profound, which is typically encased enshrined and 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 represented in the contents of the uh, practice ritual uh, these two are actually flip flip of each other so there is a because Shingon is a Vajrayana school uh, there is the, the the role of the teacher is very important there is the there is the initiatory process there is a transmission there is a kind of a process of blessing uh, and the transmission is personal, uh, one-to-one, and uh, the the training is also personal. And uh, there's no there's no open uh, offering of teachings uh, publicly. And sometimes even within a group of practitioners, uh, some people will receive a practice that other people will not. Uh, so uh, there is a highly individualized ideal of teaching that you know doesn't always stand the test of reality in institutional settings but uh, in this case because uh, my teacher functions outside of the parameters of the uh, you know Japanese uh, institution of Shingon Buddhism that is you know quite big it's it's the second the second bi- biggest uh, form of Buddhism in Japan oh I, did, I didn't know that that's yeah good. it's bigger yeah it's bigger than Zen it's, wow it's uh, if you look at the number of temples and the number of priests and all that, hmm. and the number of cemeteries, <laughs> 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 always important for Buddhism. <laughs> yes, but it, 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 the only bigger school is is the Pure Land, the the yeah. faith based uh, school. Yeah. And, uh, but if you look at the impact of Shingon on the Japanese, on the Japanese culture and and art, then it can only be compared to Zen. So it's 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 quite huge. And uh, it's it's one of the oldest surviving schools uh, in the in the in the modern um, you know Japanese situation. However, going back to going back to your remark, uh, the we did spend a lot of time together when he was here, but that was just that was just a couple of weeks a year. So there there was still you know almost fifty weeks to to spend you know in in his absence and and that's where the practice came in on daily basis and uh when we were together we would practice you know not not too much but enough for me to to get uh something to work on for the rest of the year until we meet again 
so I would say that that these two things, you know, the practice and the 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 uh, the, uh, the the doctrinal, you know, elements that that come up in the practice and that are, you know, that give a necessary framework to it, on one hand, and the namely the discipline, you know, training your mind, training your body. Uh, and on the other hand, the relationship with the teacher. These were these were kind of you know two two sides of the same of the same involvement. Yeah. And uh, it's it's impossible for me to separate one from the other. Uh, sure. And the, you know the, the, there's a third point, however, which is me, <laughs> right? And and uh, you know that that third point is is what is supposed to uh, undergo significant exposure and uh you know hopefully uh hopefully a significant uh you know process of of becoming transparent and becoming aware and uh when i think of whether it was the practice or the teacher you know uh who who were who were you know more more effective in in you know in in, in triggering exposure then again, I would I would conclude that it was actually a you know a combination of two because if I didn't have a year long practice as a kind of an accumulation as a kind of a, a process of of uh, you know going through through my own process, uh, then you know meeting the teacher wouldn't wouldn't have any significant impact. There would just not be a, a, you know a readiness to to uh, you know to encounter and to confront. Um, someone who reflects something back at you. So that's that's really interesting. Um, and I, and I want to make sure to, to clarify this word exposure because listeners may not necessarily follow what you're saying here. Um, yeah. You're talking about both the exposure of things about yourself during the 50 weeks of practice yes. that, that you needed to see for your practice to deepen, yeah. But also the exposure of the reflection you just mentioned with the teacher, with your teacher when when he was present, uh, you're, or you were present with him. Yeah, that's exactly. Right. That's okay. that's why I use that word because those are those are two different forms of intimacy. Yeah. Um, being being uh, being available and honest and 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 kind of an open book to another person is one thing, but then holding that same attitude as you go uh, as you go uh, with your practice uh, and and making sure that you don't you know that you don't abuse your practice to kind of play hide and seek with yourself <laughs> and, and to uh, to to cover up you know your own tracks <laughs> right. which, which easily happens uh, then then you know then then it's it, it's a matter of it's something akin to a perpetual confession. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you do have some Christian background. <laughs> well, we are all Christians, whether we like it or not. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but uh, I also want to just go back to that point you made about the third element, which was you. Which yes. M- meant that, as I would understand that, that the yearning or the dedication that you had was a critical factor as well because you were the one who did the practice. You were the one who had to be present for the teacher. Yep. And so, in a sense, all three are necessary and all three are critical components and all three are not really easily separable. Yes. Is, is, that, is, that, is that the kind of experience you guys had as well? Yeah. I mean, I would say the the distinction 
you know, I can look at different people who were exposed to the same opportunities of context or the same opportunities of intimacy who had a very, very different uh, uh, sense of the importance of or the configuration of or dedication to a more formal practice. And mm-hmm. that's, in that sense, you know, I've, I've kind of seen lots of variations of that triad, and uh, it's clear that uh, there's, there's a dynamic. Uh, they feed into each other. But, it, but it's certainly the case that if someone doesn't, you know, there's a certain kind of uh, dedication or a certain kind of intent that I see shared by long-term spiritual practitioners that I don't see, say, shared by uh, what I'd call weekend practitioners. Yeah. And, that, and that's what I'm getting at there. Well, not just, not just weekend practitioners, but also I would say people who may, be, may have a long-term commitment, but a long-term commitment to see things get better and better and better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Yeah, and that, that, they're when, trying, that in a way it's like they're, uh, they're going for comfort as opposed to discomfort. Exactly. Yeah. Or, or even you know, I've 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 met people who are you know uh, who are obsessed with developing particular abilities or you know becoming capable of doing something spectacular internally or externally or something like that. And that kind of obsession is is also not not very fruitful when it comes to um, you know developing a uh, multi. Uh, multi-dimensional relationship with with another person, because it you know it tends to see other people, including teachers, as tools. Right, instruments uh, to an end. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. So I'd I'd like to return to um, the a point that you made earlier in the conversation about your teacher not being. Uh, I guess, uh, 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 inserted into the, the hierarchy maintained in, J- in Japanese Shingon. I mean, I may have misunderstood you, so, uh, so do, do please clarify. But, but um, I guess I'm, I'm interested in, in how you and your teacher saw and see um, li- what, what is sometimes called lineage, and how mm-hmm. that how that how that relates to hierarchical structures in the Shingon organization Does, is that question relatively clear? Uh, yeah, it is too much so because it's very, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it's very it's very complex when it comes to when it comes to how things are done in Japan um, uh-huh. and because there's you know as 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 in every traditional culture there's a lot of tacit. Uh, assumptions. There's a lot of uh, uh, cultural accrual and and accumulation that just doesn't need to be spelled out. Uh, not just in how, you know, not just in how individuals interact with other individuals, but also in how uh, how institutions and organizations uh, perpetuate themselves. Especially if something has been around for uh, 12 centuries, as is the case in in with with Shingon in Japan. And especially if it's a kind of a secretive, esoteric uh, form of Buddhist practice that uh, prefers to keep its, you know, inner workings of uh, transmission and uh, 
lineage uh, perpetuation uh, sealed and hidden from public, uh, you know, from public eye. Uh, so there, uh, yes, my, my my teacher did. He 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 actually uh, eventually found a place for him for himself in the in the topography of of, of uh, temples in Japan and and. He's, <laughs> It's a nice phrase. <laughs> he's now an, an uh, you know a working member of one temple, uh, but he he also teaches uh, at a, a secular university, uh, or in the department for adult education. He teaches Buddhism Buddhism for ad- adults, you know, for seniors basically. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, but uh, but it's not a Buddhist university. But he also serves as a as as a priest. Uh, in a in a in a very old temple in Tokyo, mm. and but at the time when I met him, he was a kind of an independent, uh, an independent Orthodox priest without without institutional backing, mm-hmm. uh, as as was the case with many many Japanese Buddhist uh, teachers uh, from other schools who who came to the West, you know, looking for a possible uh, you know gig, as we would say. Uh, or interest. Uh, he spent a lot of time in New York washing dishes and teaching people calligraphy, uh, um, and you know, teaching them how to count breaths from one to ten, things like that. <laughs> so, uh, but the, the the problem of the, the problem of lineage is uh, something that uh, exists in a very particular way in the institutional context. And in the institutional context, uh, the people who transmit the lineage are actually tools for the institutional lineage. They're they're not necessarily uh, seen as ends in themselves. But if you cross the line and go on the you know on the on the outside of an institution, then then individuals who who uh, who uh, give teaching and the individuals who receive teachings actually become uh, the most precious, uh, uh, you know, the most precious element in that situation because so much depends on on that on that rapport and that that meeting of of you know hearts and minds to create these exceptional uh, conditions and maintain them through time in. In you know less than ideal circumstances, everyone having their own lives uh, going on, uh, to create a situation where an actual uh, you know an actual transmission, an actual uh, lineage moment can happen, and it's not again it's not one point or one situation, but it's something that has to be worked on for many years, mm-hmm. then uh, you know creates. Maybe it's a maybe it's a difficult word, but create something that cannot be perturbed by the uh, you know sudden surprises that you know life is very very good at throwing at us. Um, so creating something really really reliable in in that relationship, and that's that's then the basis uh, for 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 lineage. Uh, and, but but the third that would be the, the the second dimension. So the first one is the institutional one, which. I see just as a formality, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so sometimes, you know, in in Japan, sometimes uh, transmitting a lineage or appointing someone as the head of the lineage may be a very politicized uh, action, uh, just as it is in the Roman Catholic Church, 
just as it is in the you know in all the orthodox christian tradition in every important you know religious function in every tradition whether it's you know islam or or the hebrew tradition or or i, I think even maybe with the american indians you know i mean when you put someone in a, in a, in, a, in a powerful place it's not just a question of 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 spiritual criteria it's also a question of of recognition in the in the in the in the body politic <laughs> and and it's it's a, it's a big move and and that decision is made having other concerns than 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 the more spiritual or mystical ones so the other dimension is the personal dimension that i mentioned but there is also a third dimension namely that uh according to the shingon teachings uh the the, the, the process of initiation and the process of transmission is ultimately something that happens in the heart of one's own practice. So the teacher is not there uh, to to do the transmission. The teacher is there to facilitate it. Hmm. And he may be there to formally confirm something has taken place and to to make sure that other people, you know, recognize this one one person's uh you know maturity or accomplishment or something like that but the actual the actual action and transformation that's necessary for transmission to take place and for lineage to take root or to emerge from underneath i would say that's that's something that needs to happen within a person so uh there there have been instances in the history of of uh people just spontaneously emerging out of nowhere practically without a teacher uh, completely done and uh, completely ready and willing to function uh, uh, even better than someone who has undergone 30 or 40 years of training and you're 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 referring here to the Shingon tradition right specifically yes yes there have been such instances and well even the Shingon tradition was was founded by someone who who went for training in, in, in China, but stayed there for less than two years, which is, you know, nothing in comparison to uh, what, what other people have to do, <laughs> you know, to, yeah. to cover the, you know, the, the corresponding range of, of practices. So, uh, you know, we have to be very, very uh, uh, careful to not overemphasize the institutional definition of, uh, of the lineage because uh, it's a living thing, right? And uh, it's 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 something that it's something that uh, cannot be made the you know the cannot be made a subject of of some kind of formality or or, or control or something like that. So I, I I would just say that even for someone who who cannot find. Uh, uh, a good match with the teacher, you know. Uh, they are not left without lineage. Uh, there is lineage basically refers to something that is that is uh, contained very very deep in 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 every human being. Ah, nice. Um, I, I like that, especially that final uh, um, uh, statement there. Um, but I'm I'm still want to uh, uh, inquire about your situation. I mean, you are not Japanese. You yeah. don't live in Japan, um, and I'm presuming you may never you you wouldn't anticipate being part of a Jap uh, of a Japanese institutional context. So, yeah. uh, so in the future, so so if that's the case, um, yes. how does Shingon 
in what are the, what are the um, <clears throat> what potential institutional contexts, if any, might emerge in the West, in your view, to support uh, folks like you, who are well, who, who are yeah. drawn to Shingon? Oh, I see what you're asking. Yeah. Well, I have no idea. <clears throat> okay. Uh, that you know, I uh, in 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 real life. Um, as, as far as Shingon is concerned, I'm, I'm serving a, a, a relatively small group of practitioners here locally. Mm-hmm. And uh, because of the particularities of the, uh, of the style of practice and, and the, the training involved, uh, it cannot be taught other than in person, on, you know, actually on the spot, right? right. There, are, you know, there, are, there are physical and, and, and uh, performative details involved that had to be have to be learned in person uh, a little bit like singing and dancing uh, and um, there's a group in as I said there's a group in the United States that has been there for many years and the the kind of uh, institutional form they develop is basically like something like a private family tradition uh, so there 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 haven't been any any serious uh, thoughts on our part? Uh, I remember a serious conversation at one point with uh, with our teacher when riding somewhere from I, I think we were going from from Burlington to Canada and back, something like that. So it was a day long trip, uh, and we we were talking about this problem of you know how to continue in the future. And uh, our teacher's answer was. Uh, I taught you, uh, now you teach Western people. That's it. So, uh, and he taught us, you know, he, 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 he spent time with us and trained us and, and lectured and, and practiced with us always, sitting, you know, the same hours from 5 in the morning to 10 in the evening, uh, always there. He taught with us in the conditions that we created for him. So... Uh, he didn't say do this, you know, uh, do that, and then I will come or something like that. So you know, we created the conditions that we thought were best suitable, and he would sometimes want something more or less of something. But he basically accepted, uh, you know, the situation in which he found himself. So basically, what is important is that people come uh, who are interested in practice, and that you know, someone is willing to engage them and to work with them and it's not just a commitment from the side of the student the commitment from the side of the of the teacher is very important and when teacher commits to a student uh, you know they should commit for a long long run um, especially because we have this saying that the first 10 years are basically uh, just to see who's who uh, <laughs> And uh, that that's exactly how it went for me. And uh, so th- there, there hasn't been any serious talk of, you know, organizational structuring or creating a formal network that would, you know, bridge the, the two situations that are happening uh, in the United States and in Europe and things like that. So basically it's small, you know, independent uh, groups composed of individuals that organically you know, develop and self-organize uh, around the shared common, you know, practice. Yeah, that it. Uh, uh, our teacher used to call our our little group uh, a mom and pop 
spiritual uh, tradition. And it sounds similar, this manifestation yes. in the West. Well, there is a, there is a very old tradition in the West uh, where teachers would adopt their students. Mm. Um, this goes back to very early pre-Socratic uh, uh, Greek mystics mm. that lived around the Mediterranean basin. And they would actually take the student into the, into the family. And we can hear similar stories, and both in the Tibetan tradition, where, where you know, a, a worthy student, so to speak, you know, would come and actually live in the in the household of the teacher. That happened, if I remember correctly, that happened with Milarepa. Uh, and be, yeah, because he, he 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 not just encountered his teacher, but he was also treated very well by the teacher's wife, while while he was abused by the teacher. <laughs> <laughs> I think we we hear that also in like shamanic traditions that yeah. there's, there's that notion of adoption. Yeah, but you know the church the church narrative is very different because it's this huge institution that 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 is all about growing and growing and growing and you know uh, taking thousands of people on, into their fold and things like that. So automatically, you know, there there is a need for an economic organization, a, you know, a social organization, an institutional you know uh, setup and all that. But when we talk about, you know, small dynamic groups of, you know, intimately connected people, then, then it's, it's very manageable. It's, it's smaller than a clan. It's just like an extended family. Right. With, you know, with, with all the challenges of an extended family. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, one area I'm interested in exploring is um, uh, in Shingong, you know, you've used the term esoteric. Buddhism, yes. and yeah. there's a kind of a distinction here that I think is interesting to draw on uh, between esoteric and uh, exoteric or non-esoteric. And you know, one sense I have is this notion of the power of the relationship with the teacher, you know, or the guru, uh, to use an Indian term. Yes, is is part of that uh, the tuning of practices to the individual. Uh, is another piece of that. And that's a very different kind of feel and model than, for instance, what I might see in uh, the Western manifestations of Buddhism, whether it's a Vipassana retreat or uh, uh, Shashins in a Zen community. There's a, there's a single practice that a lot of people have. There is some level of intimacy or tuning uh, with a relationship with a teacher, but it seems more formalized and a whole lot less juicy than the kind of the intimate one-on-one -on -one that you're describing with the, in the Shingon tradition. Yep. So, so I'm wondering if you could speak for a moment about that, how you see that distinction of esoteric and exoteric, and um, that'll lead into another question I have. Okay, so uh, I remember an old text, you know, these, these days when you hear about, what, what, for example, the only comparable thing is the Tibetan Buddhism and, and it's, it's Vajrayana tradition, right? Mm -hmm. The diamond vehicle, as the translation would have it, Vajrayana. And the, uh, in the early days, uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama uh, would refer to that tradition as secret mantra. Uh, when translated into English, and and if you go back to the Tibetan, that's the actual term used for that tradition, secret mantra. And uh, the the term the word secret here is 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 what what we uh, now say esoteric. 
And the word mantra is actually uh, what, what is translated into Japanese as Shingon. Ah, so okay. Shingon means mantra. And the, the full term for Shingon is Shingon Mikyo, which means the secret teaching of mantra. Mikyo means mi, secret, kyo, teaching. So the secret teaching of mantra. And that is one of the synonyms uh, going all the way back to India for what later became Vajrayana. Uh, Buddhism, or what was in the West known as Tantric Buddhism. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but the word esoteric uh, has, or, or secret, or, or uh, the, the, the noun to which that points is mystery. And mystery is uh, the word used in that tradition for what one encounters in practice. So the practice consists of uh, three kinds of actions. Actions of body, which are symbolic hand gestures, things like that, or ritual actions on the altar, or just a, you know, holding a posture for meditation with, with your hands in front or down in your lap. Those are body actions. Then there is a speech action. Those would be the recitation of mantras or prayers or aspirations or uh, staying silent and just breathing. That's also a speech or a basic silent energetic kind of action. And then there is a mind action, which consists of both uh, active imaginal uh, uh, actions and dissolving those active imaginal actions to, to then rest in, in, in awareness, basically. And these three kinds of actions lead to, to the encounter with three kinds of mystery, the mystery of the body, the mystery of the speech, and the mystery of the mind, which is all one big mystery, basically. Uh, and... That's one meaning of esoteric. So that let me let me uh, uh, interrupt for a second. Uh, um, is if we use the term mystery, am I to understand that as lived experience in the body or lived experience as opposed to something that I can discursively describe? Well, that's one. That's uh, yeah. That's one axis on which you can. Okay, enter. so let's bracket that for a moment. Let you continue. We can come back to that. Um, qu that's question. interesting because that has to do with our discussion of belief, if you remember. Right, right, and that, that's exactly, and that, yeah. it, it does, yeah. and it, and it, but it also has a sense of uh, my understanding of Shengong also from a very limited, uh, you know, kind of preparation for this conversation is that there's more of an emphasis of embodied experience that comes to the practice. Oh, definitely. Yes. And and that's that's what I'm I guess what I'm getting at is like to me mystery partly is I can have an experience of something if if I if I do certain practices and just as you described have this have an experience it's multidimensional and it's not something that I can particularly project onto a, a set of descriptions and mm -hmm. and transmit to someone cognitively. Yep. In order to share in that, one has to participate in this uh, multi-dimensional practice. And, oh, very good. Yeah. And very good. Yeah. So that's what, that's what I mean by mystery. It's like, it, as much as I might like to tell you what it is, I can't, because you have to like follow this path in order to get to the place to where you can partake of it yourself. That's one thing, yeah, definitely, and that's that's actually that's actually the meaning of mystery that that uh, that lends the name to the kind of Buddhism, because the the sutras or the uh, foundational texts of this tradition are 
are uh, deeply metaphorical, symbolic, and uh, typically mystical texts that you cannot take at face value. You cannot glean their meaning by reading these texts, but you actually only understand the text when you have uh, when you have uh, uh, experienced the practice. So you know, once you have experienced the practice, then when you go back to the text, you can you can understand it much better. So when when you have the appropriate experiences, then the description given in the text makes perfect sense. Even even the symbolism and meta- and the metaphors and all that the the, the poetry of the text uh, when you have the appropriate uh, experience that is so that's the second meaning so the first meaning is what you encounter in practice the second meaning is how the texts are used uh, namely not as you know literal literal descriptions of something but of uh, layered symbolic and metaphorical uh, um, um, what would you call uh, records of uh, an unfolding of experience that is only available through practice? Mm. So uh, you know they they're, they're not taken as as a description of a historical time and place, such as in Buddhist texts. You often you know Buddha was there and there, and you know that was that kind of season, and that he was in that kind of village or that kind of city, and then that person came to him. So th- this is not these kinds of texts. They also have figures, but these figures are not historical figures. Uh, and these places are not actual physical locations. They are more like spiritual states. And the, uh, you know, the audience that is present at, at the preaching is not, is not, again, historical disciples, but uh, each, of, each of the members of the audience represents a particular spiritual faculty and things like that. So there's there's a lot of symbolism and a lot of a lot of uh, uh, metaphorical uh, reading that goes on with such text. But even so, even if you do that without an actual practice that goes with that text, uh, it just doesn't make much sense. It's like it's like reading a description of a great golf game, you know, for someone who has never played golf. We need to take a short break at the hour. You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Hokai Diego Sobel. Hokai is an instructor in the Shingong esoteric tradition of Japanese Vajrayana under private tutelage of Ajare Jomyo Tanaka and founder in 1999 of the Mandala Society of Croatia. Since 2012, he has focused on mentoring individuals to deepen their practice in the context of their lives. Those who pray learn to meditate, and those who meditate learn to pray. Welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick, joined in the following by co-host Dr. Robert Schmidt, director of Talia Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. We now continue with a pre-recorded conversation with Hokai Diego Sobel. 
Hokai is an instructor in the Shengong esoteric tradition of Japanese Vajrayana under private tutelage of Ajare Jomnyo Tanaka and founder in 1999 of the Mandala Society of Croatia. Since 2012, he has focused on mentoring individuals to deepen their practice in the context of their lives. Those who pray learn to meditate, and those who meditate learn to pray. This is, this is very interesting because, you know, <clears throat> we live in an age, I mean, even your, your, the first 10 years of your searching sort of reproduces um, the point I, I want to make here is that it's an age when there are, when virtually every text is available on yes. the internet or there's some, there's some workshop you can go to and be exposed to this teaching and that teaching, you know, a, a completely new arena in which in which what used to be um all these disparate and separate um contexts of practice would would have no intersection and and now we're you know it's a very different time and yet uh, i'm hearing and this is really interesting to me that 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 shingon is is maintaining the clarity of the secrecy if you will the necessary yeah. secrecy um, to allow for uh, understanding to emerge slowly through training the body, etc., um, and that's um, I think that's a that's a pretty unique uh, at this time in terms of public understanding of spiritual practice. That's 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 fairly unusual, quite unusual, I'll say. Does well, that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. The point of secrecy is is poor and. In, in the you know in the spirit of our time because mm-hmm. it most people think that you know if if there is secrecy then there's something to hide yes or or that there is you know that there is that someone uses secrecy as a source of power right. or control over you you know like right. like I'm not giving it to you until I get from you what I want right <laughs> something like that like a kind of a hook or something you know a transactional but, relationship. Exactly, but that's not what's happening here because the secrecy here may become this kind of corrupt form if it's not related to a natural secrecy. Namely, uh, you know, we we don't we don't uh, we don't encounter the spiritual dimension in. It's not an on-off switch. There are there are layers and layers and layers of spiritual unfolding for everyone. Now, someone may go through. Five years, someone may go through fifty years, someone may go through five hundred years, and therefore they need to believe in a reincarnation to make sense of that. But <laughs> just kidding. But uh, what I'm saying is that it doesn't all happen at once. And uh, the, the point of secrecy is that there is a natural secrecy, namely, uh, I'm hiding things from myself, and the unhiding, the the discovery doesn't happen all at once. So there is a there is a point in developing in developing uh, uh, you know the the ability to relate to something that I keep hidden from myself and to you know to be honest with that as you practice that there are things going on uh, as you're sitting there that are not available uh, to you. Because of how you relate to what's going on, so it's like it's like a self self-maintained secrecy, right? Uh, so it's not it's not a secrecy that is imposed from outside. 
It's basically a secrecy that is imposed from within uh, and that is, you know, usually in exoteric schools referred to as ignorance. So, uh, go, you know, going back to the meaning of the esoteric, the founder of, of Shingon School in, in, in Japan, his name was Kukai, uh, he, he, uh, he, he said that uh, the meaning of the term esoteric is relative, meaning that esoteric is deep and mysterious and hidden in relationship to something shallow, public, and simple. And so he would, he, he would basically envisage a scale of esoteric, not a, you know, not a, it's either this or that. So there's a scale. So he, he had this classification of all Buddhist schools in 10 stages and starting from the most simple ones, uh, and then they actually grow in secrecy. They actually grow in the esoteric component. And the esoteric component becomes more and more self-conscious until, of course, like every model, his own style was, you know, at the top. It's an unavoidable human well, thing. <laughs> he, was, he was a founder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, anyway... At that time, of course, there was no organized Zen in Japan, and uh, I, I wonder where he would put Zen. Uh, I don't know. So, anyway, uh, he he said that with 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 Buddhist Vajrayana in general, and uh, in this case with with Shingon specifically, this this esoteric component of of spirituality becomes self-conscious, and basically, it's not something that we're trying to get rid of by developing ever more elaborate teachings, ever ever more subtle philosophical, you know, constructions, and uh, ever more demanding uh, you know, spiritual regimes and meditational disciplines. And it basically becomes self-conscious and therefore becomes at once completely available and at once we, we, we learn how to appreciate it and how to relate to it. Yeah, and I think the kind of the follow-on question I had on that was whether you find as Buddhism is transmitted to the West, is Western culture have as much room for this kind of esoteric versus non-esoteric distinction or um, is that something that exists in different forms necessarily in any sort of spiritual tradition or is is uh, the esoteric model and the sort of the guru teacher model more suited for different uh, a different culture than the Western culture. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. Well, on a, you know, on a large scale, uh, it's it's not working in the East either anymore. With the arrival of modernity to the yeah. you know to the Asian societies, that kind of thing is falling apart. So, but I wouldn't be you know I wouldn't be so so skeptical about the Westerners' ability. Uh, to embrace something that has been part of their own history for so long. Uh, you know, if God speaks to someone, they speak from within them. Mm -hmm. um, God doesn't speak to people publicly. So already there you have an esoteric relationship. And uh, the, same goes with, uh, the same goes with the Western mystical tradition. The esoteric is the synonymous with mystical. Yeah. And, you know, there is a mystical component in Christianity where I'm not sure if there is a single Christian mystic or saint that, 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 that didn't have an important uh, and, and very close relationship to a teacher. 
and the idea of spiritual director in in uh, in uh, in Christian uh, you know contemplative orders is very close to 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 what uh, a master or a teacher is in in Asian Buddhism. Uh, I was I was literally thinking of that example when you were describing in uh, you know the 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 teacher in a large institution and then the teachers the the, the uh, teachers that people actually interact with on a daily basis um, below below that. Yeah, yeah. The important thing the, the important thing is that exactly what you said now the regular interaction and and the 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 face to face human uh, relationship. So so effectively. Whether we call it esoteric or uh, or not, it's it, we're getting we're back to that intimacy. It's it's that part of the process is tuned to the specific situation of the individual. Exactly. This, this isn't a transmission that is uh, like a scientific finding that can be reproduced in the laboratories, uh, uh, kind of without the participants. Exactly. It's a little bit like uh, you know your marriage and 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 your. Your parents and children relationship is is esoteric to everyone else. Yeah, that, that's a, that's a nice way of putting that. It is. Yeah. So there's a, there's another dimension uh, in that you've touched on. You've written on this, and one of the pieces that you shared with us uh, goes into this. But I'm particularly catalyzed by it because of your early uh, impressions of Western uh, Hermeticism, and that's the role of the imagination. Yeah. And I wanted to talk about that a little bit because. You know, we we come out of a tradition, the the Gurdjieff uh, work that, on the surface, is very down on imagination because imagination is is more configured as delusion or making well fantasy, yeah, fantasy, um, d- uh, a sort of uh, um, let's call indulgence, it, yeah, let's call it fantasy, yeah, or passive imagination in which fantasy is sort of uh, kindled automatically in a uh, interior process. Yeah, and my, and in my own practice. I came to see through through contact with a, a Western Hermetic teacher. I came to realize just how crucial the role of imagination can be. But I'll let Stuart finish well, his question. Yeah, well, I mean, I think I, I, we just want to invite you to uh, uh, talk about this because the comments that you made about active imagination and, and its role, um, you know, really resonated with us. So I'll, I'll turn it over to you to. Uh, Maybe crack this one. I think, yeah, I think this is actually uh, the same kind of challenge we have here as with uh, belief versus faith. So th- th- there are two kinds of imagination here, and uh, th- th- there are, there are two ways of believing. So uh, you use the word passive, and I think is is very good. Uh, because this is one of the ways to distinguish problematic belief from from what I would argue is is uh, beneficial belief mm-hmm. or supportive belief. Uh, and uh, the word passive, on one hand, you can you can be passively possessed by beliefs, or you can actively hold beliefs and test them in particular situations intentionally. Mm-hmm. And and see where that takes you. If 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 you believe that you know, if you actively believe everything will be well, does that change your stance, your attitude? Does does that then change your experience? Does that then lead to different actions? Or if you actively believe, say you practice that from Monday to 
to Wednesday. And then from Thursday to Saturday, you actively believe there is an impending disaster. Everything is going to hell. By the end of the day, everything you hold dear will be gone. Everything will become corrupt. And you will just live long enough to see the ruin of everything and everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Nicely, comprehensively said. (laughs) Okay. Where do I sign up? (laughs) And there will be a painful end. Who won't die before that? Uh, Eastern European is coming out. (laughs) If you hold that belief actively, is there something different, you know, going on from Thursday to Saturday than uh, the thing that that was going on from Wednesday, right? Right. And then if on Sunday, as it is, you know, our our good Lord's Day, if if you let go of all beliefs and practice suspension of belief, and suspension of judgment. And, you know, the real deep, deep skeptical thing as, as practiced by the Greek uh, school of Pyrrhonism, or would you say Pyrrhonism, I think, yeah. uh, that, that was being skeptical even of skepticism. So, and that is very similar to Buddhism in yeah. that way. Yeah. Uh, and if we now go to the same thing with imagination, uh, you know, you can, you can be passively possessed by uh, imaginary uh, productions uh, arising from uh, the inability to embody your present relationship to the environment. And then uh, what comes from that, the inability to uh, process emotional arisings and then the inability to make sense, which gives rise to incessant thinking. And then running from that uh, extremely, uh, extremely uh, frustrating, uh, you know, present situation into memories and then running into the future. And if, if that's the kind of imagination that we are describing, that is one big attempt to escape uh, you know, the feeling of, of being pinned here and now, uh, then, yeah, that's, that's a very problematic uh, case of, of, of imagination. That's basically something we can call fantasy or fancy, or we can also call it, uh, we can also call it delusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, in worst case scenarios, you know, we can call it uh, delusional thinking, uh, even, you know, hallucinating, projecting, things like that. But there is a different dynamic to imagination, if you are actively actively pursuing uh, the same the same uh, you know uh, process of seeking out a different way of being, I mean, just just asking the question: Is a different way of being possible? You are actually opening the doors of imagination, and we usually think of imagination in terms of content, but we should reverse you know the 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 kind of thinking behind it because active imagination is not about content; it's about it's about making oneself available for something new to arise, uh, basically becoming, uh, you know, becoming a fertile field for new possibilities, uh, you know, physically, emotionally, mentally. That's that's what imagination is about. And there may be particular practices that employ, you know, uh, formulaic, uh, scripted versions of creative or active imagination, such as prayers or you know visualization practices wh- whether whether one in which uh, you you uh, literally imagine something visually 
which is not done very often in, in, in the Shingon school. Uh, and when it's done, it's kept relatively simple as opposed to the, you know, to the Tibetan intricacies of visualization. And, uh, uh, but, but more importantly, you know, imagination is about, is about basically opening the cramped space of, of experiencing to, to, to make place for something new. Uh, so, uh, it's, 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 it's just as much about abstaining from thinking as it is about purposefully thinking. It's just as much about abstaining from, you know, feeling something, uh, just as is about uh, purposefully feeling and and giving into something, right? So, is is that is that the kind of direction that you were? Yeah, I, and and I'll 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 give a couple of examples of uh, of what I found from from the Western Hermetic tradition. Yeah, uh, there are imaginal forms. Uh, one teacher we met referred to them as kind of like a, in uh, a karate you have katas, you know, which are performance. Yeah. Phys- yeah. So in the same way, there would be the <coughs> imaginal performances, which might be simply uh, invoking silence. It might be uh, aligning oneself with the four directions. There's there's a you know a whole menu of things that then can be put together into larger ritual forms. But yeah. the, the emphasis in this particular teacher was uh, a musician as well. So he would always refer to, you know, the reason it's called magical arts mm-hmm. is because it's like an art. You know, you practice yeah. and you get better, you know, in a sense, and you go deeper, but it's an experiential thing. And there's not, you know, you're not getting something out of this. It's a, it's a particular way of aligning with a kind of energetic experience of the universe that has a particular uh, character or flavor and that the practice is to deepen into that just like if you play a musical instrument the practice is uh, you know you'll get subtler and subtler uh, as you continue your relationship with the uh, particular musical form Mm -hmm. and and then the other piece of this that's uh, kind of relevant is that I, I study with a a teacher for shakuhachi, uh, the Japanese uh, bamboo flute, and I've been working with this teacher for many years, and he employs imaginal techniques in terms of movement of energy, attention in the body, uh, um, uh, as as instruction. Yeah, as instruction. And what's interesting about this is that. Uh, uh, it's objective. It objectively changes the quality of the sound. And Rob, as you know, who's watched me have these lessons, will listen and listen to this instruction, and you'll hear something completely incomprehensible, like you know, uh, play to the wall or play to your mother across the room or things like that, where I'm invoking imagination, and yet it it changes the physical context and makes makes uh, available access to. Um, a quality of energy that was different than I had access to before, and that's a, that's a very direct thing. Well, and if it's done well, it changes the sound. Yes. Oh, uh, oh, oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Most discernibly, most discernibly. So other people, other people can hear a shift. Right? Right, right. Absolutely, absolutely, a big shift. But but so this is uh, you know you know Stuart's laid out some stuff here, and I'm wondering how the use of imagination in the Shingon practice as you. Uh, do it um, uh, relates to to all this. 
Well, in the formal practice, there is, you know, there is, there is formal practice and then there is what we may call daily practice, uh, as, as you're going about your business, right? Mm-hmm. But in the formal practice, which is a highly structured ritual practice, basically, that involves body, recitation, silence, and, uh, you know, certain elements of visualization or remembering or things like that. Um, imagination is, imagination is basically, uh, a way of, on one hand, uh, from from a very kind of a surface uh, utilitarian or mechanical reading, imagination is a way of making sure that that the compulsive uh, activity of mind uh, gets channeled into the you know into the into the stream of practice. Basically, that's that's the most simple way of thinking about that, it. That makes sense. Yeah. So basically. Uh, one could, one could, you know, one could discard it and saying, "Oh, so you're keeping yourself busy, right?" Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, uh, you know, well, yeah, I'm keeping myself busy. You can put it that way. Uh, for a higher, for another purpose, though. For another purpose, exactly. So it's not just to keep your, oneself busy. Now, the, the, the second level to imagination is to actually uh, uh, to. When you when you look at the actual uh, when you look at the actual elements that are used in the content, as you mentioned, the four directions, for example, uh, Stuart, you, you you mentioned like yeah, look, when you think four directions, do you think north south or forward back and left right? In this in this particular case, it's uh, uh, you know, uh, east south west and north. Okay, yeah, so. We have these two, but we have ten directions because we have the four basic plus the four intermediary plus the zenith and nadir. Right, that's true. You've got above and below and within. So actually, it's it's seven in this in this model. Okay, yeah, and then there's the center point, right? And uh, and we have those two. So bringing your attention to different directions, bringing your attention outwardly, inwardly, things like that. Then we have things like imagining a, a full moon circle in the middle of your body, full moon circle expanding to encompass the body, full moon circle expanding along with your mind to encompass the whole world, uh, resting there for a while, then bringing the full moon circle back to the original uh, size and then dispensing with all imagination and resting in natural presence as the final uh, and key uh, element in imagination is basically that this sequence shows that you learn how to stretch something outwardly, inwardly, but in the end, all imaginal work bring you to the ability to be fully present. So, in in that very sequence with the moon disk meditation, is is actually hidden the the uh, the uh, the understanding of what's the purpose of imagination. So, if imagination in whatever form results in a greater uh, ability to be present with what's going on, then it's good imagination. If it weakens you in being present or encourages you to to be absent or to want to be elsewhere or to uh, or to be you know to be unreachable and unavailable, then it's a bad imagination. Well, this this sounds a lot like it's reminding me of what you were saying earlier about uh, whatever it was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. You you. 
um, believe one thing, then you believe the cardinal opposite for the next three days, and then on the sun, on the final seventh day, um, just, you're in this other place. Right. So. Yeah. And and it's it, as you describe that it it is it resonates with some of the intent with certain forms of the Western Hermetic uh, tradition. I mean, yeah. just like any tradition, there's you can always find people who are trying to uh, get money and uh, do whatever. But the the higher forms of Western Hermeticism has that same kind of model. You yes. start you start in silence, you expand out the imagination, but you always return to silence. Exactly. Yeah. So it's 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 basically like imitating the the uh, universal creation uh, to the best of our you know understanding of what that universal creation may be right. So you know we have different models of it, but even if you think about Big Bang or things like that, um, which is a you know a, a recent interpretation of of the creation, uh, uh, and even if you think of evolution and things like that. So if you if you mimic and and imitate these. Uh, huge cosmic processes, then you come to a you, you you come to a model in which imagination has to have a an active role. You are listening to the Mystical Positivist. I'm your host Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Hokai Diego Sobel. Hokai is an instructor in the Shingong esoteric tradition of Japanese Vajrayana under private tutelage of Ajare Jomyo Tanaka, and founder in 1999 of the Mandala Society of Croatia. Since 2012, he focused on mentoring individuals to deepen their practice in the context of their lives. Those who pray learn to meditate. Those who meditate learn to pray. Yeah, I'm, I'm also struck by or remembering your, your uh, comment about a continuum. And so when you're doing the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday say positive, fully positive, the, you know, the Thursday, Friday, Saturday, fully negative, you're actually recreating and, and per, po- hopefully expanding the possibilities for that continuum and, yeah. your, and your contact with it. Yes. Yes. True. Yeah. Very good. Now, yeah, I mean, that's, that's something that uh, Rob has stressed a lot is, is it's about widening your repertoire. Yeah. You know, yes. being well, able to, and and finding where the resistance is to go a particular place and to uh, understand that resistance and to move past it. Yes, exposing yourself to to uh, exposing yourself to uh, some kind of extreme that you can you can still sustain and you know and experience without being you know uh, seriously disturbed or traumatized or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. But. But stretching, stretching your limits anyway. Now, you mentioned Shakuhachi before, and in, in, as, as integral part of our exposure to Shingon, we were, uh, we were trained in, calligra- in Japanese calligraphy, mm-hmm. which I personally then uh, changed into the uh, Indian calligraphy uh, using, the, using the syllables of the ancient Siddham script, which comes from India, but is still preserved in Japan, oh. uh, to, to write mantras and to write seed syllables, mm. uh, for example, Om or Ah or Hum or syllables like that. Right. Uh, so I, I stopped practicing Japanese calligraphy actively, but uh, I practice this, this other particular form uh, called Siddham script. And... Uh, those uh, those uh, letters are written and 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 uh, performed uh, as as a kind of a singing, 
because there's a resonant, you know, vibrational dimension to the letter. And there are also instructions on how to sing them that have nothing to do with, uh, you know, with the singing performance, just as you said, with the shakuhachi. Uh, and uh, there is also the, uh, our teacher has, has demonstrated for us the, the, the way of ancient singing of Buddhist prayers and hymns in the Shingon tradition, which is called Shomyo. And uh, it's, it's a little bit like the Gregorian chant, mm-hmm. uh, but in a Japanese way. Okay. And uh, it's, it's really difficult, mm-hmm. and it's really arcane, and to our you know, modern sensibilities, there's no melody, there's no rhythm, there's just the, you know, the boring sound of human voice, right? <laughs> and, <laughs> however... Uh, the, the the way you approach you know the the embarrassingly inconvenient quality of your own voice has has everything to do with developing attention and nothing to do with impressing anyone with your singing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so so you know that that reminded me when you when you made your comments about shakuhachi. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a for me you know it's less about performance although performance is useful because it creates a certain kind of tension that's uh uh a helpful a, a different kind of alchemical element to bringing it all together but it really is more about yeah, how, all how about you yeah it's it's about like it really it's it's more like how do i open myself to be a conveyance of something outside of myself and, exactly and yes even my shakuhachi teacher's uh, recommendation is, you know, your mind isn't do your mind isn't playing. Your mind has a job; it's to kind of keep the channels open, and yes. so it kind of moves its attention around to all these different uh, loci in the body to uh, uh, make sure that presence is there. But yes. it's not doing anything. It, it, it's, it can be fully engaged in kind of keeping the channels open, and then it's satisfied. It's kind of like a dog, you know, that has a job of like, you know. Defending the territory. Yep. But what comes through has nothing to do with the activity of the mind. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, it's 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 really interesting that when you when you when you perform in front of other people or when when I you know not not very often but sometimes I would sing some of these hymns or or uh, prayers to. Uh, to my own students, you know, to the group of practitioners here, and uh, if you if 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 you want to impress, uh, you know, someone, or if you if you even if you even allow a single a single shadow of you know ambition mm-hmm. of trying to accomplish something to, to to get into that act, it 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 comes out completely wrong, and and <laughs> it's maybe technically perfect, you know, uh, and or close to perfect. But it doesn't come from the belly, it doesn't come from the heart, yeah. and therefore it doesn't resonate in other people's bellies, it doesn't resonate in other people's hearts, and it basically just kind of, you know, everyone will say, oh, what a singer. But, you know, they will never, they, they will never say, oh, what a hearing. And that, yeah. that, that's the point of creating sound, so that, so that people may recognize that they are hearing something. Yeah, and that 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 description precisely maps onto uh the way our uh, uh teacher in Shakuhachi engages with his students. It's uh and in lessons and in workshops, you know, he'll 
catch you if you're <laughs> if your ego is <laughs> engaged. He's very he's very sharp that way. Yeah, well, some experience you can actually recognize what yeah. someone is doing, even even when you you know after many years, if you look at someone sitting in meditation, you can you know just just by the body or or by the very subtle of you know subtle change in the posture because of the breathing or because where attention is directed, you can you can spot you know what what what's going on, right? And you can you can correct that or admonish or or ignore and and let them you know let them suffer. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the thing, so the thing I want to celebrate about this part of the conversation is is how unusual it is to recognize that the faculty of imagination is intimate or can be intimately linked to the experience of the body, and using the body then as a um, as a tool for creating certain certain effects and experiences. I think that's very rare to, to have that, that linkage um, recognized. So so this is this is very this is very useful uh, yes. it seems to me. And um, and I don't know if if um, how you how, how I mean uh, how you articulate that to to your students, for for example, I'm assuming that that it's that that you talk about it in this way, to, at mean, least to how, some how, extent. How would I introduce the body? Mm-hmm. Well, I have two. <clears throat> I, have to, I have two ways of of doing that. Usually, I will say that the body is the only element in your personality that is always here. Twenty-four. Mm. Mm-hmm. Until, until it isn't. <laughs> well, well, un- until it's until it's radically redefined. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there we go. There, there, there we yeah, go. Well put. Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> yeah. That's nice. I, I, <clears throat> I wouldn't say it goes anywhere. Got it. Uh, Fair enough. You know, there's e- even with death, there's nowhere to go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I, I, okay. Yeah. So, and the th- the second thing about there, it's it's always present. It's never, you know, it's never. It's never before or after. It's mm-hmm. exactly where 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 whatever is going on is going on. So both in time of space and time, the body has no doubts. So uh, you know, bringing bringing attention to the body is your best chance of not straying too far from where the actual action is, uh, which is here and now, right? So that's one talking one way of talking about it. Uh, and and part of that package that I usually offer is that uh, it's not just the here and now. It's also that the body is the place where all experience arises. Uh, eye, ear, nose, tongue, touch, plus emotion, and most thinking uh, isn't disembodied. Uh, so the faculty of the physical senses is effortless and automatic. So if you, if you're not blind, you can see without making an effort. Mm-hmm. If you're not deaf, you can hear without making an effort. And the same with all the other senses. So the, you know there's something to be said about the body in that in that way. Now the second thing that I usually introduce is is death, uh, which is the point that you introduced when you said until it isn't right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, the, the body is is also the only the only way of knowing that you're not dead. <laughs> <laughs> good good point. Because, Maybe because and then most I, and mostly. 
<laughs> well, then I usually make a sarcastic comment because judging by everything else, you are dead or <laughs> <You're> open. <right. laughs> you know, I mean, judging by the way we feel, judging by the way we think, judging by the way we want, uh, we're not really alive. Yeah. Uh, or even even an ordinary person without any training or without any exposure to to you know to spiritual challenges or impossible horizons as I like to refer to them, uh, even an ordinary person can imagine being twice or three times more alive than they are. Uh, so even an ordinary person without special preparation knows they are not really as alive as they could be. Um, so. We can refer to this as, as you know being dead, but in a wrong way. It's not like spiritual death. It's it's more like you know n- not really being alive. So the body is again the real place to start checking whether you're alive or dead, and finding that you're not dead yet, right? So uh, you still have some time to work on it. So th- these are the two avenues. Now uh, these are just part of my you know creative attempt to to impress with the students that uh, uh, the body is actually, you know, extremely available as a, as a venue for practice on one hand, and on the other hand, that the body is uh, something that is uh, immediately uh, connected to this fact of, uh, you know, limitation in human life. So that it's somehow a great reminder to, you know, to stop worrying about, uh, uh, you know, trivial things and stop wasting your time and instead, you know, ask the the question, okay, what do I really care most deeply about and then apply yourself to that. Uh, Maybe it's not spirituality, but, you know, uh, anyway, you know, uh, making sure you don't, you know, you don't ignore that, right? Uh, So that's one thing. But the other thing actually connects connects with the Shingon tradition because uh, uh, the founder, Master Kukai, uh, one of his most celebrated texts is called Attaining Buddhahood in This Body. And some people translate that Attaining Buddhahood in This Lifetime, but it's synonymous, basically. And that's the title. And in the text, uh, he says, basically, that we attain uh, wakefulness in this body as uh, given by one's own parents. So he's actually talking about the the actual... Not about some metaphysical or mystical body, right? Uh, not about some kind of you know strange spiritual body. He's actually talking about the flesh and bones and skin and hair that is that is mortal. This is where we find our wakefulness. So there's you know there's there's an explicit text uh, treating that subject, uh, and uh, there is a very funny story from from Japan uh, of of how the masters sometimes uh, separated by centuries communicate through uh, through uh, uh, simple ideas because this text of Master Kuka is called Sokushin Jo Butsu Sokushin means this body or exactly this body and Jo Butsu means attaining Buddhahood or becoming Buddha something like that so these are four words and and uh, you know Master Dogen, right? Who is a Zen master from the 12th century, I believe. And Master Kukai is from uh, late 8th, early 9th century. So there is kind of a 300, 350 years between them. And Master Kukai said, uh, "This body become Buddha." 
and Master uh, Master Dogen, who who founded the Soto Zen school, famous for its just sitting method, he said, "This body is Buddha." <laughs> so, so there is a kind of a pun there, uh, like moving on, saying, "Okay." become Buddha in this body and like Dogen said, this body is Buddha. So <laughs> because his 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 emphasis in practice is there's no need to become something. There's all need to completely be what you are, right? So you know there is there is this emphasis on the body in both of these schools actually if you look at their founders. But sometimes the followers don't pay attention to their founders. Yeah, somehow it's easy to dismiss the body. Even the apparent self-conscious attempts, it seems to me, that I see articulated uh, these days to um, to honor the body, um, often still arise out of an implicit um, distinction between body and soul, or so, or spirit and body. And 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 so I like what you're saying. I like how you're you're locating the importance of the body in the actual flesh in the experience of the flesh and that's 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 um um different than 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 we often see i think uh, articulated yeah. yes i think so yeah uh, you know sometimes these these messages get uh distorted um uh, intentionally uh and sometimes it's just a and on uh, at other times it's just a natural consequence of the kind of of the kind of environment in which these uh, radical messages were preserved or transmitted. And if you think at the history of Buddhism or history of Christianity, the, the task of preserving and transmitting was, was given to the monastic community, right? And in, in, both, of, you know, in both of these traditions, the com- monastic community was uh, in, in a very you know, odd, odd uh, position to the body. Uh, given you know, given their mostly celibate uh, orientation in practice, and you know, given their great emphasis on you know subduing the the base uh, instinctual physical impulses, and um, you know, uh, which was always a kind of a challenge and a problem, and in in that kind of context, you know, the practice uh, where the practice is one of renunciation and and abstinence and things like that. Uh, the emphasis on a, on a, on a, on a healthy, uh, rich relationship to the body may easily get, you know, kind of sidetracked, put in the background, and then later even distorted. Uh, but you know, we can uh, we can uh, certainly say that what, what is happening in the modern world with the body and the kind of uh, you know reclaiming, reowning the body is is not what we're talking about here either, because. Right. Uh, what's happening now is a very either hedonistic or uh, you know utilitarian or self-empowering or egotistic or something like that. And uh, uh, if yeah. you and, know, and you're talking about using using the body. The, the, our our teacher's teacher had a book called "The Human Biological Machine as a Transformational Apparatus," and which is a very abstruse term. But the basic idea is the body as a transformational tool and a and a locus for for trans for redirecting attention in in a way that um is a different configuration than the than than what you were just describing in the monastic traditions east and west yes definitely yeah and we have 
we have one meditation in Qingnan, which is called the the, the meditation of the five uh, five spheres of or five circles, which which is a Japanese translation of chakra. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the the five chakra are basically the five elements, hmm. and uh, so you go earth in the hips, water in the belly, fire in the chest, wind in the face, and uh, space as a crown. And each of the five elements have their color and their kind of a geometric shape in which they are visualized. But they are they are visualized in the body. Yeah, and. If you bring all those five elements together, you, you get what the Asians call a stupa. And a stupa is what represents a Buddha. So it's basically a physical form uh, of... It's, it's, it's a physical form of a Buddha mind. Or it's a physical reminder of a deceased Buddha originally. Right. But then, you know, for centuries it became to symbolize Buddha mind. The, so basically, when, when a physical Buddha dies, what remains is, you know, is his realization, right? So that monument represents his realization. So if you take that monument and then you visualize it internally, coinciding with your own body, what does that teach you? Yeah. So you're, you're basically interpolating, right? You're interpolating a perfect cosmic body with your own physical body. Right. So what, what's the message there? What's the writing between the lines, right? Right. <laughs> Many right. possibilities. So yeah. This is why that metaphor is superior to descriptive, you know, in, in instructions because because metaphor has many many layers, and different individuals may find different layers layers open up for them. Right. Mm-hmm. Or contains all those, uh, you know, different possibilities. It's it has more than one meaning. And 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 to go back to our previous conversation, uh, the the lived experience of actually practicing that and invoking that, the feeling of that in the body actually yes. is transformative. Yes, and then there's each of these, each of these five has a different syllable. And then you have to chant it with a yeah. long, long, long exhalation like playing the shakuhachi for yeah. at least 30, 40 seconds. Try and produce a syllable for 30 seconds, right? Yeah. And that really requires some effort, and then you you get you really get into it. So it's it's it. You don't think about it. You you do it. You do it again and again and again, and you get to a place where you start experiencing your body in a different way, and the, the environment you know becomes a different kind of sphere. It's not just an object there and an object there. It's 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 an open space where I can be present. It's a very different relationship to to yeah. environment and. And basically, if, if, if your practice is one of, of, of we, talk, we talk much in Buddhism, especially in Vajrayana, about you know, bonding, bonding student and teacher. Maybe you've heard of the word Samaya. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's, it's usually translated as commitment. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's ideally uh, designed to produce a situation where a mind-to-mind encounter may take place and where, where two minds may merge, which is basically a situation of transmission or lineage arising in the meeting of two minds. But there is, there is a hidden meaning to this. And basically, the hidden meaning is that my, you know, your personal mind is the student and your body is the teacher. Uh, nice. So... You know, bind those two together again and again and again. Commit your mind to the body, 
uh, until there is a, an encounter, until there is a merging, and that's where lineage emerges. That's where becoming alive, becoming alive actually happens. That's that's called the birth. That's well. This is a perfect place to uh, kind of draw this uh, this phase of the conversation uh, to because a close. We, we certainly want to have you back on the show again. We have uh, clearly we have. <laughs> yeah, the time just flew by, but uh, uh, very quickly, if you could uh, let people know your uh, website and uh, uh, you know how to get in contact with you, uh, and we'll post that when we post the podcast, too. It's very simple. The website is hokai.info, H-O-K-A-I dot I-N-F-O, and... Uh, there's a there's a very short introduction there, a couple of you know a couple of articles, uh, nothing spectacular, but there's also, uh, and you know a kind of an explanation uh, how I work with people uh, uh, online uh, through Skype and uh, contact form, all very simple and uh, you know accessible. Perfect. Well, uh, okay. Thank you for joining us on the Mystical Positivist. It's been fabulous. Yeah. Thank you. And well, you guys, you guys are something else. I must, I must say, I, I had stage fright before, and <laughs> because of you know, because of some of the other interviews I've done, and uh, I also, I also have have had many discussions, and we we haven't met in person, but I feel as if we have. Yes. So thank you very much. I, I feel that as well. You have been listening to the Mystical Positivist. This is your host Stuart Goodnick. This week we featured a pre-recorded conversation with Hokai Diego Sobol. Hokai is an instructor in the Shingong esoteric tradition of Japanese Vajrayana, under private tutelage of Ajari Jomyo Tanaka, and founder in 1999 of the Mandala Society of Croatia. Since 2012, he has focused on mentoring individuals to deepen their practice in the context of their lives. Those who pray, learn to meditate. Those who meditate, learn to pray. Next time on The Mystical Positivist, we feature an in-studio conversation with Hal Blacker. Hal Blacker is the founder of Real Dharma. He teaches non-dual wisdom and meditation and leads a meditation and study group in Marin County, California. He believes that direct, liberating knowledge of one's true nature is available to everyone without need for dogma, priests, authoritarian structures, ritual, or elaborate practice. This kind of liberating knowledge is not the end, but is a new beginning for most of us, the beginning of a life lived without the bondage of fear and unnecessary sorrow. He is authorized to teach in the traditions of Advaita Vedanta and Tibetan Buddhist Nyingma Dzogchen. Currently, his primary focus is on teaching traditional Advaita Vedanta, which he studied under Dr. Carol Radha Whitfield and her guru, the late Swami Dayananda Saraswati. He has also been initiated and studied with Advaita Vedanta under the Sri Ranjit Maharaj, a master in the lineage of Sri Siddha Rameshwara and Sargadatta Maharaj. Hal studies Nyingma Dzogchen primarily under Anam Tupton and was authorized as a holder of that lineage in 2010. He began his studies of Buddhism under the venerable Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche in the early 1970s. Tune in for that show on Saturday, January 12th from 4 to 6 p.m. Upcoming on the spiritual calendar in Sonoma County, to follow your bliss, first follow your dread. That's with the Taiyu Meditation Center staff, 
Wednesday at 7.30 p.m. January 2nd, 2019, at Mini Rivers Books and Tea, 130 South Main Street in Sebastopol. Story has it that in the very bottom fissure of hell, the deepest recess glowing with unquenchable fires, a simple drain cover lies unnoticed. Find and remove the cover, descend through the narrow drain, and emerge into the highest, most radiant realm of heaven. If this metaphor resonates with something in you, our practice group work that focuses upon follow your dread may resonate still more deeply. No one can be divorced from or denied access to the mystical heart, but to open and then live within the mystical heart of the world and ourselves has a cost. We don't get there by denying, sweeping under the rug, or putting aside the aspects that we dislike of who we have been. The mystical heart receives the light and the dark without judgment. So in our group and individual practice, we seek to cultivate a heart-mind that holds all contents of consciousness simultaneously, with discernment, and without discrimination. Following your dread is an undertaking best accomplished in the company of fellow travelers and with guidance from others who have gone before. Join us Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. at Mini Rivers in downtown Sebastopol to learn more about the realistic path to the mystical heart. And then, at the Thursdays at Mini Rivers event in Sebastopol, to create and sustain a habit of open-heartedness. That's with Rob Schmidt, Ph.D., and yours truly, Stuart Goodnick, co-directors of Taiyu Meditation Center, Thursday, January 3rd at 7.30 p.m., Mini Rivers Books and Tea, 130 South Main Street in Sebastopol. The meme of our time is obsession with human perfection. Focusing upon perfection, we soon find how we fall short of our high standards in so many ways. This leads to fixation on our compulsive habits and a gnawing sense of restlessness operating just below the surface of our awareness. As part of the consumer culture, the personal growth industry offers the illusion of simple fixes through acts of will. Yet how many customers truly find what they seek? In contrast, Genuine spiritual traditions offer training in the alchemy of the heart that transforms unconscious habits into food for a genuine expansion of consciousness. Unlike the transaction of a weekend workshop, this training cannot be bought but must be paid for through a sustained commitment. Join us for a discussion of how a sustainable habit of open-heartedness, in contrast to a habit of grasping after growth, might be created. Rob Schmidt, Ph.D., and Stuart Goodnick, co-direct Taiyu Meditation Center, owner and operator of Mini Rivers Books and Tea. They study the alchemy of the heart intensively with Taiyu founder Robert Daniel Innes. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday.
けてたよな。